Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for over three years now, but for people who might be listening for the first time, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before I get into the show, I've got to point out that the new Material Matters Fair is right around the corner. It'll be running at Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf from the 22nd to the 25th of September and will, frankly, contain some wonderful things and brilliant thinking. Look out for an exhibition celebrating the upcoming monograph from the design agency Layer, for instance, as well as site-specific installations from the likes of Gallery Up and Form and artist Stuart Haygarth. There'll be exhibitors exploring the value of the materials we use and looking at subjects such as circularity and waste in particular, with companies such as A Blunt Story, Circuform, Crafting Plastic Studio, Nature Squared and Smile Plastics. There'll also be a fistful of brilliant makers and designers there too, including BC Joshua, Kerry Hastings, Fung and Bedford and Modet. Not only that, there'll be big furniture brands there, such as Scandinavian companies Foraform and Ragnars, as well as Hydro, the global recycled aluminium company, which will be holding a series of special talks aimed at architects and designers. And naturally enough, there's going to be a talks programme, with speakers including Nigel Coates, Beth and Laura Wood, glass artist Christopher Day, Naomi Cleaver, the list goes on. Finally, designer Michael Marriott will be my guest for a live episode of the podcast. It's going to be great. Oh, and it's also free. You just need to register by going to the visit page on my website, materialmatters.design. That's materialmatters.design. There's also an Eventbrite link in the blurb that comes with this episode. So on that note, my guests today are Hannah and Justin Floyd, who are the co-creators of one of the materials that will be at the fair, solid wool. But what is solid wool, I hear you ask? Well, essentially, it's a composite material made up of wool from the Herdwick sheep, which is used as the reinforcement, and bioresin that acts as a binder. It's beautifully smooth, probably best compared to fibreglass. When I first came across Hannah and Justin at a show in Milan almost a decade ago, they were displaying a range of items made from the material, including knives, sunglasses, a table, and perhaps most importantly, the extremely elegant Hembury chair. After a short hiatus, and we'll get into the reasons for that later on, the pair sold their company to Roger Oates Design in 2020, which put a new version of the Hembury back into production, while Justin has stayed on as a consultant. Hello both. Thank you very, very much for doing this. Hi, Grant. To kick off with, I'd like to give listeners a bit of context when we do these episodes. Can we describe how you're set up for this interview? Because we're doing it over Zoom, and I know you're in different parts of the house for that reason. <laughs> yeah, same house. Yeah, I'm in the bedroom. Oh, I'm downstairs in the lounge. Yeah, it's a small, it's a small terraced um, cottage in the centre of Butfastly in um, Devon. Okay, and you live here with, do you have children? You certainly have a dog. We know there's a dog. But are they kids and everything? Yeah, we've got a little girl called Morwenna. She's four years old. She's been taken out by Nan today. <laughs> <laughs> but not the dog. The dog stays in the house. No, and he may be joining in later. Okay, okay. Shall we start at the beginning? And maybe, Justin, you can kick off by telling us what solid wool actually is. What is solid wool? You summarised it quite well, Grant. Thanks. It's a composite material. Succinctly put, we used to say, or we say... It's like fiberglass, but with wool. So it's made up of the wool of the Herdwick sheep, a mountain breed predominantly from the Lake District. And that acts as the reinforcement in the composite, which is held together by a bioresin binder. Yeah, the current new iteration of solid wool in the Hembury chair is 50-50 wool and resin. Right. So, I mean, my next question, because I'm keen to get into how the chair has evolved a little bit later. But in, it, how is the material itself made? What's the process? It's a moulding process. So 
it's not high volume production by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a manufacturing in mold process where the wool is laid up into a mold, not in the same way because this is quite unique, but in a similar way to which you can imagine someone laying carbon fiber into a, a bicycle frame mold or even a boat hull at the other end of, of size. The mold is then closed with solid wool. There's a hell of a lot of compression to get the, the fiber fraction high to get as much wool as we possibly can in the mold. And the resin is injected under pressure. Right. And so you end up with this material and what are its properties? What are its properties? It's very tough. If I make a comparison to carbon fibre, because everybody has a handle on carbon fibre, I guess. Mm. Carbon fibre is known for being lightweight, and you're able to make lightweight structures from carbon fibre because carbon fibre is so stiff and strong. Now, solid wool is strong, but it's not as stiff because wool is flexible. But it's tougher. I mean, solid wool is never really about mechanical performance. That was that was never at the that was never mm. uh, never leading the the development process for it. But from a mechanical point of view, you're never going to make a lightweight, super lightweight thing from solid wool like you would with carbon fiber. Right. But you might make a very tough, very strong, very beautiful thing. Mm. It will withstand a lot of flex before it breaks, and it's got a nice bit of flex in it if you wanted to engineer with it. But maybe. And this is something Hannah will probably be able to enthuse about. Maybe the, the best thing about solid wool is its beauty. It is an engineered material, especially now, but beauty was always key mm. to pulling it off for us. Well, Hannah, it sounds like I've got to ask you about beauty and this material. Yeah, the whole process of how we got to coming up with solid wool and actually using wool in this way. Maybe we'll touch on that at some point in the mm. chat. I think it was at the point at which we used Herdwick wool that we realised that this was a material that would be remarkable in its visual rather than just its ingredients of resin and wool. It was this undervalued, coarse, itchy, scratchy Herdwick wool that the British Wool Marketing Board had asked if we could use because at that point it was one of the lowest value British wools and many farmers were just burning the fleece. They were making a loss. They weren't getting the money back for the wool. So it was just for the for the well-being of the sheep that they had to clip the wool every year, but it didn't cover costs at all for them. So we trialled it in solid wool and it just looked beautiful because Herdwick wool is various tones of grey, brown, but also there's these white guard hairs in the wool. And just the contrast between these colours in the material just got us really excited. It was like, ah, we're onto something. Here's a new aesthetic that doesn't exist. It's taking that visual texture of wool but putting it into a whole new material which was smooth to the touch that was the moment where we knew that beauty was one of the key selling points of the material because where did the idea come from in the first place there's a story i read online justin i'm going to come to you on this Mm -hmm. that it came while you were talking to a dartmoor sheep farmer who told you he was struggling to find a market for his wool is that true or is that rural myth Bit of both, I think. (laughs) Lots of things came together, actually. And there really was a light bulb moment, but there were lots of, as all these things are, I think, there were lots of steps along the way. The story goes, we were, we wanted to find ourselves new jobs, if I'm honest. Mm. It was a sort of a life rejig process that led to Solibor being born. Well, that's quite interesting because I had that as a question. Okay. (laughs) But I'm intrigued generally because you start this new thing. It sounds like it was started in quite an experimental way. Oh, for sure. Why did you need to change? 
we had been working for the same company for a number of years. It was a small business that made components for yachts and boats in the marine industry. And I was a design engineer and Hannah was, you were the marketing department when you had <laughs> fine jobs, but we just felt like we weren't in the right, doing the right things. For me, being a design engineer sat spinning CAD and measuring parts and rejecting them every day. I don't know. I wasn't being the designer I once thought I wanted to be. So I took one day off a week to do a master's to sort of try and reignite something. Right. A passion for design, I guess. And out of that master's came solid wool. Yeah. But it came after this conversation with a, a Dartmoor sheep farmer or... Can you take us through the steps of the development of Solid Wool? So with the Masters, I was trying to rework out what design was for me. And there were many steps along the way, which led to Solid Wool. Because at the point of starting this Masters, I had no interest or experience in wool. But I think I was searching for what design represented for me. And the thing that really got me going or, or redirected me was how to use design for good. And I came across a quote that reads... Something like perhaps the best thing we as designers can do for good is to put people to work. And designers make things, but they also make jobs. And I was quite inspired by trying to close that loop on knowing that I was creating someone a job by creating a product. So that came before trying to add value to wool. Right. So from that, I sort of took that and I was like, well, how can I use that? and looked at the community, looked at where we lived. And we hadn't long moved to this town we live in, Buckfastley. And I don't know how much you know about Buckfastley, but it's a little town on the edge of Dartmoor. Yes. It's an ancient woollen town. Well, I was going to say, that that's what I know about Buckfastley. Yeah, <laughs> it's an ancient woollen town. And you enter the town and there's a sign saying, Buckfastley, ancient woollen town. Yeah. So we were like, well, what's, what's here now? <laughs> you know, what's here now? And actually at that time, there was a carpet factory, which had just closed. And that was sort of news at the time people out of work because no one wanted to make anything from wool in this town anymore there was the sheepskins tannery devonia sheepskins is still here so we looked at the town and we had a location could, could we and it, this was a project yeah this at this point in time this was just a, a, a theoretical project could we start a business here in this town and if so what material what would we make so we had a location and we had a material we had wool but it was important to be involved in that town, to be part of the community for you at that moment in time, is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. I mm. think it was. There's just the idea of seeing a positive change through design. That's what we were searching for. And firstly, it was, yeah, could we create something and create work for people? And then it was what material, which was wool. But at that point, I didn't really understand how undervalued certain types of wool were. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we started off trying to learn how to work with wool. What could we do with wool? And tried lots of different things. It was play, really, that sort of time. I was going into the sheepskins tannery and getting offcuts of waste wool. I was sort of trying to stuff bike saddles with things. I was trying to make structures from sheepskins, trying to felt wool by hand and turn it to 3D shapes. In other words, you didn't have a sense of what you were going to do with it. You just wanted to do something with the material. Yes. We'd given ourselves some constraints. Let's do something in our town and yet let's use this material. But it was a kind of, what do you do with this material? And it seems like quite a risk, Justin, if you don't mind me saying. I mean, Hannah, were you completely behind all this? Just yet yeah, go off and experiment and hopefully we'll come up with a company? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it was, I think it was kind of going back to that. We wanted to find ourselves new jobs, but we wanted to stay in Devon. And at that time, 
there weren't many companies here really at that point that were really inspiring. We were kind of reading of all these companies kind of throughout the UK or worldwide doing good, you know, products with purpose. And we were like, do we move to try and find a job like that? Or do we do it ourselves? And I think part of it as well was the fact that we had been in these jobs probably for too long and you kind of like Justin lost his passion for design. You lose your confidence when you're not doing the right thing. And being inspired by all these companies and knowing somewhere inside you that that's what you should be doing, but then not having the confidence to think, well, how would I ever get a job like that anyway? Because I don't have the confidence to get that kind of job. So let's do it ourselves because it's easier just doing something yourself sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The genesis of the story reminds me a little bit of the jeans company Hyatt Denim, who are based in Cardigan and owned by David Hyatt. The story being that Cardigan used to make all the jeans for brands like M&S, but eventually the factory was closed down as the making was sent offshore. And Hyatt wants to reinvigorate the town by bringing back denim, albeit in a more crafty way. And when we met Justin, which was at the Designs Block installation at Milan, and we've worked out it was 2015, I seem to recall you were wearing a pair of Hyatt jeans. Indeed. So that model was obviously quite important to your thinking? It was for sure. Yeah, it was Mm. for sure. I think David and Claire were setting up Hyatt about the same time as we were, as I was doing this Masters, I think. That's where the sort of doing good ethos came from, really. That period of time where I was, I was still, you asked about risk, but risk was slightly mitigated because I was, I was working, I still had my job, although I was doing it four days a week and Hannah was still working. But during that time, yeah, I, I went to attend the do lectures. Right. Which he also founded. Which yeah. he also founded. And that's where a lot of the inspiration came from for how can we use design as a force for good and yes, putting people to work through design. Mm. So we left the tale. There was a mm. lot of trial and error, but presumably there must have been a eureka moment where you turned and said, ah, this is what it's all meant to be. Solid wool. Here we go. Yeah. And I think actually, because you were talking about the chat with the farmer, I reckon there were two really. Right. Okay. I think the first light bulb moment was because I'm a design engineer and I work in 3D, I wasn't trying to weave. I wasn't making flat things. I kept trying to make structure. And one day Hannah said to me, why don't you just get some PVA glue and paint some wool with PVA glue and stick it on something if you're, you know, right. like this is really basic stuff. And looking back at it, it really was. So I think it literally was yogurt pot painted in wool and PVA glue. The glue dried, took the pot off and we had a structure. And for me, that was the penny drop moment because I worked in the marine industry and I was used to designing parts from fiberglass and carbon fiber. I just saw the potential to use wool as a structure, as a reinforcement in a, in a composite material. So that was, that was the first sort of, I can see how this might work out moment. Mm, mm. I mean, I guess the, the slightly curious element of this story is that you live in the Southwest, and Hannah, you've kind of alluded to this already, but you live in the Southwest, and yet you're alighted upon the Herdwick sheep, which is bred almost exclusively in the Lake District around Coniston. I think the statistic is that, I think it's on the Solid Wool website, is that 95% of Herdwick sheep are found within 14 miles of Coniston. So you have this idea about your own town, Buckfast Lee, but you end up using the material at the other top end of the country. Why did that happen? Why not use a breed that lives nearer where you are? Um, well, first of all, we didn't. We didn't use Herdwick to start with. I was, right. I was concerned with provenance and trying to source our wool from the moor, basically. Because Buckfastley is a woollen town because 
there's sheep on the moor just behind the town, mm. water running through the town, like many of the mill towns from Northern England. And I was trying to use what was on our doorstep. And we did in the first crude bits of solid wool or wool composite were made with Scottish blackface wool from Dartmoor. And I think in my masters, everything was that type of wool. And after the masters, I got invited, or we got invited to an exhibition called Wool House at Somerset House in London. Right. And it was there and we had a, we had a chair. It didn't look anything like the Henbury chair now, but we'd made this chair. Mm. Um, it wasn't a white wool. And I can't remember where that wool came from. It might have been some offcuts that someone had they gave me. But it was, it was a dark wool, so the chair was dark. And there were no, very few sort of white bits in it. It didn't look quite as solid wool as current solid wool looks. And a gentleman from the British Wool Marketing Board came to talk to me and said, oh, this is very interesting and unique. What wool is that? Is it Herdwick? And I didn't even know what Herdwick was. Right. So I said, no, it's whatever it was at the time. And you know, what is Herdwick wool? Why are you asking about Herdwick wool? And he went on to explain that, as Hannah said earlier on, it was the lowest valued wool in the UK at that point in time. Can I ask, being a, a wool novice, why it was the least expensive wool? What's wrong with it? It's rough and coarse, I suppose. So once upon a time, it was used for carpets and probably used for clothing, probably used for socks and outerwear. But I think what happened over time is with the carpet industry in this country declined. So demand for that wool lessened. It doesn't dye very well. It doesn't take colour very well. So I think, I think it just fell out of favour. And for clothing, yes, it's itchy, scratchy and coarse and you wouldn't want to wear it. And it got to the point where farmers really struggle to move it on. I think it's worth so little that if you pay someone to come and shoe your sheep, you've lost money by the time you've actually sold your Herdwick wool. Yeah, the statistic that I kept reading was it's worth 40 pence a kilo, which, which sounds very little <laughs> as far as I can work out. I don't know what the up-to-date price is, but I think yeah, yeah. Having, having chatted to many Lake District farmers in, in our time, I think it's going to cost you something like pound twenty to get somebody to shear your sheep. And a fully grown herdwick is something like one and a half kilograms. So two kilograms. So if you're getting 40p a kilogram at auction for your wool, you're making a loss getting somebody in to shear it, let alone taking yeah, into yeah. account haulage and that sort of thing. So, and so did you immediately think this is the material to which we can imbue a renewed sense of value? So at that point, when this gentleman from the Wool Marketing Board suggested her, but I hadn't used it. So through him, I got hold of some and we made some soluble panels, some small little panels we were making at the time. And it looked remarkably different to what we were using at the time. The wools we'd been using at the time were just sort of, you look up close and you can see it's wool, but from a distance, they were just one colour. Whereas Herdwick has lots of wiry guard hairs in it that are white. and they were standing out and the mix of colours in the wool was standing out. It's, I think it's coarseness helped and it looked beautiful. So we were like, oh crikey, there's something here. You know, we're, we're making something really unique that has a real striking aesthetic. And that's the point at which we were, were thinking, right, this wool's got a story. It needs to be used. We were never using it because it's low cost. We were using it because, hold on a second, this is a resource that's there. And as long as there's sheep on the hill, whether you agree with hill farming or farming at all, those sheep need to have their fleeces cut off every year. For their well-being, you could call it a renewable resource and you're able to use it to make things from that 
it would never get used for. Yeah. No, it's an interesting one, that, because we have had people on this podcast talking about sheep and how they're not indigenous to this country, uh, yeah. the kind of rewilding lobby and yeah. not fond of sheep. Yeah. <laughs> but they're there. Yeah, they are. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll ignore that yeah. for now. <laughs> I hear that, and we've come across that an awful lot. But with Herdwick and other UK breeds, there's a material there that it's there to be used. You know, it's not really getting used for anything else. No, 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 exactly. And we're not going to get rid of all our sheep. So look, you sold the business in 2020 to Roger Oates Design, and we'll come on to the reasons for that shortly. I'm interested in where the product is now. When I first came across you, you had the Henbury chair, which Oates is now producing, but you also had knives with the Maker Bed Edmonds. There were sunglasses with fan optics. These aren't happening anymore. Yeah, I guess we haven't really discussed or more so leading on from the part about all along, this was always a project based on kind of play. And if we do something, something will happen. So trusting in the process and not entering into something which needed to be commercially viable and that kind of killed the creativity. It was if there's no end goal, we can just trust in a process. And if we take steps, something will happen. You talked about risk and it may seem risky, but we did still have jobs and this still was a side project. Yeah. yeah and yeah. maybe it's one of the reasons why we're not business people, but we didn't have an end goal. We were kind of just seeing where it went, really. But this notion of play, I think, is really interesting because it is what design quite often is about, isn't it? I always find that you talk to designers, and they do have a, an almost childlike sense of the importance of play. So play was a vital role for you in this, Hannah. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of Justin's master's project but he would come home and we'd discuss because we always knew the final year project would be I guess it wasn't a constraint but we were hopeful that something would come of it that could be the thing either he worked on or we both worked on but that was never a pressure it was more that it would be nice if that happened but let's just see where it goes and so I guess yeah we just used to play and if we had an idea our washing machine was full of wool fiber because we'd stuff tights and make these wool balls which we'd sew together and you kind of look at it and it was really hard to come from especially for Justin to come from however many years as a in-house product designer to playing like that and going well this is pointless and you can almost dismiss it before you've tried it but we were like if the idea is there let's do it and then we'll learn something from it, even if it seems ridiculous. And you look at the page of images of the things we tried and you look back at them and you're like, oh my God, it was all terrible. But actually it wasn't because it took four months to get to the PVA glue and wool moment. So we wouldn't have got there without the experiments before. So the knives and the sunglasses, that was part of the play and the chair was the real deal. Is that really what we're saying? Yeah. I mean, when we tried the Herdwick wool and we saw what solid wool could look like, up until that point, we still hadn't thought, let's design a chair. It was more, let's make this material. And then when we saw what the material looked like and the fact that it would be a moulded fibreglass alternative almost, the thought was very much, well, a chair is a perfect way of showcasing a material. And I guess looking back to the Eames shell chair, which very much was a part inspiration. That was the first production fiberglass chair. And so we were producing the first production solid wool chair. So the Eames echoes in the design, that's not a fluke, in other words. Very intentional. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that was the first production fiberglass chair, but it certainly feels like it, doesn't it? And yeah, could we sort of echo that by making a chair from this material? And tell me, how is the Hembury evolved i mean you've, you've kind of mentioned it a bit 
Justin, but it's now using more wool and the bioresin has developed. So I'm interested in what's in the bioresin and how bio the bioresin might be. The process has evolved and this is part of the beauty of Soluble version 2 through Roger Oates really, is that we were able to push some development a bit further. We started the business out of our own pocket really and it was very much, everything was, I mean saying it was done in a shoestring maybe undervalues it, but we didn't have you know, the resources to to make the sort of production setup that it now has. And I think the first chair, first version was probably 25% wool. So we were still using a bio, we're using a bioresin and that bioresin, it's an epoxy with a high natural content, but we were probably 30% natural content in the resin and 25% wool. So what's changed? Well, as soon as the business sale went through and I started working with Roger Oates, we redeveloped the material and the process and that new material mix we came up with is now 50-50, 50 wool, 50 resin, which this is maybe a, a bit boring, but in the composites world, getting to 50-50 is pretty good going. Mm. Where does the bio in the bioresin come from? Well, this is a lot of items today that you know, use natural materials claim they use a bioresin, yeah? Mm. Mm. And it's never clear what the, what the bio bit means. So... More often than not, it's very similar to what we're doing. And the bio part is a reclaimed oil from the paper processing industry. Right, right. So if you, if you imagine paper, you squash paper, or you're, you're making paper and you're squeezing out tree sap. So you've got a, a tree resin in there. And I think with solid wool version two, Henry chair version two, uh, you're at about 80% natural. So for that composite shell of that chair, Wool and biocontent in the resin, it's about an 80% natural item. And the rest of it that isn't natural is what, a petrochemical? or Petrochemical, what, what yeah, petrochemical. And, it's, right. and it's, it's needed as a hardener, really. There's developments happening in that world. I mean, we, we're not, or sort of all, we were never chemists. We weren't developing the resin. We were developing the manufacturing process to, to get wool into a composite. And we're relying on the resin industry to move ahead. But even since we've got the Hembury into production, Again, I know that the resin industry is moving on. Is the Hembry still made in Devon? It is still made in Devon. It's no longer made in Buckfossilly, um, but it's still made in Devon, in East Devon. Yeah, which is where Roger Oates have got, a, have got another factory making their tufted rug range. It made sense for them to put it under the same roof as that. I'm kind of interested, I guess, because I mean, we discussed that you looked at various other options, but why a chair? Why is it the designers are obsessed by chairs, Justin? Yeah, good question. <laughs> I was always fascinated by chairs. I remember when I was a student in London going up to um, Camden and walking around the secondhand markets and, and looking at chairs. Chairs and lampshades, I think, really kind of got me back then. But we felt it was a good way to advertise the material, really. Mm. If, you, if you could make a chair, it felt that it was legitimising the material, really. Sitting in it is important, in other yeah. words, being yeah. able to sit in a material. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. I think also it's an everyday object, isn't it? So you know you're creating something of use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It makes complete sense. I mean, it's, it's interesting researching both you and the company because there's loads on the material, but not so much about you personally, which as a journalist always intrigues me. Yeah. <laughs> so Justin, you trained as a designer in Plymouth. Was that your MA or was... Well, my undergrad, my undergrad was product design engineering at South Bank University. Right. Back, back when I graduated in 2001, I think. Okay, so yeah. Plymouth was the MA. 
Plymouth as EMA, yeah. And we live, we, we live near Plymouth. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. And Hannah, you studied marketing in Bournemouth? Yes. Yep. You met through work? Yep. So I'm interested what drew, I mean, Hannah, you're in Bournemouth. Justin, you studied in London. So what drew you south? This interest in marine products, were you drawn to the ocean, I wonder? Yeah, I grew up in Brixham, so in Devon, ah. by the sea. So always lived by the sea. You know, you think you're going to go to London or to a city. And I think my brother and sister did that at uni. They went off to Birmingham and Liverpool. So I kind of got to experience it a bit through them. And then I think you realise when you've grown up in the Southwest, you want to leave as a child. But actually, once you get a bit older, you um, there's nowhere better to live, really. Mm. Mm. Justin, you're doing this one day a week. Was the notion always that you'd work together? Was that important? I don't know if we ever discussed that. It just happened, I think, really. Anna, did you discuss it? <laughs> <laughs> I think at that stage, it was very much about not keeping Justin happy, but I think it was if we, <laughs> if we find the thing which is good with him, then that's a good starting point. And then we'll see what happens with me. I think we both wanted new jobs. We both wanted to do something with a sense of purpose. And probably it was unsaid that we'd hope we could find something that would support both of us. Yeah. There's an element of Mr. and Mrs. to this, which I'm quite enjoying, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're both in separate rooms. Yeah. It's quite good. Yeah. I quite like it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Hannah, I disturbed you. I think because we'd always worked together, we hadn't really known it any other way. So there was no, it was never going to be this unknown of, oh, you know, how will it be if we have to work together? Because that's all we'd ever known. It was more there just won't be other people around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because I'm quite interested by how you work together I mean is it straightforward as Justin being in the workshop Anna and you being on your laptop doing the marketing side I mean, did, did the roles dovetail or, or do you cross over I did all the making no I did all the moulding Hannah's finished a fair few chairs and coasters and placemats in your time haven't you yeah there were the logical roles which was Justin Justin did design and I did marketing and then there was just business admin which probably fell to me but then being able to do a bit of practical work, I guess I finished the legs, oiled them, built the boxes and did that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it was just the two of us. I mean, there's a lovely chap, a good friend of ours called Angus, who came along and worked part-time for us for a while. But it was it was just the two of us for many years. Just, you do everything, don't you, when you're trying to make it happen. Mm, mm. So look, you have this brilliant idea. The company's getting loads of media attention. I don't know if that turns into hard cash, by the way. But things are looking good. I remember I was keen to write a piece on you for the magazine I was editing at the time called Crafts. You moved into a bigger factory space in 2017. That's true, yeah. You did a project with Wolves of New Zealand using recycled carpet. There was a project with Urkel. Then it, it all stopped from the outside very suddenly. I know it's difficult, but can we talk about what happened? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, it stopped because I became ill. 2018, summer of 2018, I was diagnosed with a blood cancer. So we had to stop, really, because I needed to get treated. But when my treatment finished in um, January 2019, I don't know for sure if Hannah felt the same, but I was like, right, we've got to make this happen now. <laughs> Which, looking back on it now, is really, really odd. Sort of been through that, and it was giving us an income, just about. You know, we were living off the business just about, and it was like, well, we've got a chance to make this work. So. When I felt like I had the energy to get back to work, we essentially, should we, what should we say, got things together to present the company at Design Junction in September 2019. And actually, while, while I was being treated, Angus was making chairs because we didn't close the order books. 
but we had we had orders rolling in or well, not rolling in but we had some orders coming through and angus was making them uh get things going so we owe a lot to him i mean it must have been an incredibly difficult time i mean were you able to do any work or were you in a hospital or yeah, how did you discover that you had this disease justin so so add to the jeopardy shall we say our daughter was born in april of 2018 and um i had a lump i had a lump on my neck which we had noticed early in the year but Hannah was due to give birth in April and we were trying to work out how to run a business while having a newborn. So we just kind of got on with sorting that out. And then it was June, I think. We'd just been at Bobby Tracy Croft Festival, actually, exhibiting. And yeah, Hannah had, Hannah had sort of said, you've still got that lump on your neck. So went straight to the doctor. And luckily, I suppose, I was able to say it's been there for a number of months. And yeah, investigations, investigations started. Um, yeah. Which led to led to the diagnosis. Yep. And I mean, sorry to, to pry. I mean, do tell me if I if I am prying, by the way. But were you in hospital for long, or how did that happen? Yeah. So it was a blood cancer. So I had I had six months of chemotherapy um, to put it into remission, um, which has worked. And yeah, I, I feel very lucky that um, I got lucky, and then we were able to make it disappear. And. Are you recovered now, Justin, or do you actually recover? Or are you in remission? How does, how I'm, does I'm, that? I mean, it was cracky. I'm recovered. It's gone. Yeah, it's gone. And feel, yeah, back back to normal. But I, but chemotherapy really does um, suck the life out of you, shall we say. So when I came back to work in 2019 to try and, let's try and, let's try and make this happen, yeah, it was exhausting and probably bit off a bit more than we could chew, if I'm honest. Mm. But it did give you a focus in that case. You came out of that saying, I need to do something. We need to take this to a different place. Is that, is that what you're saying? Crikey, massive, massive, <laughs> massive life moment and uh, life shock. But I look back on where we are now as being very fortunate. And I look at, look at this happening to me as a good thing, which might sound a bit odd to many people. But having got through it and being in the position we're in now, it, it made us reassess things. Overall, it made us reassess things. Coming out of treatment and having something to focus on, yes, we had more when we had our daughter. Um, you know, and and having her got me through, got me through that autumn and winter for sure. But then having something to do, having work to come back to that was our own and that we really believed in, actually, I think that was a really good thing. And the process was good because we started it up again. It gave me something to do at my own pace, although I bit off more than I could chew probably and got away with it. But it gave us something to focus on. And um, actually having the design show, that gave us a point at which to make a decision on whether to continue or whether to stop mm. i mean hannah it must have been extraordinarily difficult for you you have a newborn you have a husband who's desperately ill one wonders how you coped yeah yeah it, it wasn't ideal yeah. <laughs> but i guess in that way that you're saying we kind of had only ever worked together and this was just another kind of thing as a team we had to deal with and i think together we are naturally positive. We try to live joyful lives. And I think, yes, the first two weeks after diagnosis were horrendous, but then, you know, you're sucked into a system and as humans, we just cope, don't we? You kind of either cope or you don't. But I think humans do have, you know, we all know with what's happened over the past few years, you know, we're massively capable of adapting and 
just dealing with unplanned shocks. And as Justin said, we had a four-month-old. And so, you know, you can't just shut yourself away and feel sorry for yourself because you've got this four-month-old that needs feeding every three hours and brings a lot of joy. So you've got to be incredibly practical as well, I imagine, in that situation. We very much had a support network around us, plus the hospital, your, your Justin was very much supported by them. You know, he had his thing to do and I had my thing to do, which was to look after Mo. So yeah, we just kind of dealt with it. And I guess it wasn't that, I think we just chose to be positive. And that isn't saying that there wasn't darkness in those times, but actually I don't look back on those times as being overly dark. It was more, we had a newborn. And she brought us lots of joy. And I was around. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't really work because it would be too exhausting and chemotherapy knocks you for six. But for my treatment, I was in hospital for three days every three weeks or something like that. So I was, I've been around for a lot of time in Moana's early years. So I'm lucky. That's a gift. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're out the other side. Thank the Lord now. Congratulations, by the way. Where are you two at now? So Justin, you're consulted for Roger Oates on the chair. And what does that role kind of entail? Yeah, consulting on the chair. I mean, we've, with the chairs in production and maybe we'll, we'll go backwards in a minute to why, you know, the actual selling decision. But to answer that question, there's a great team now making Henbury chairs in Kilmington, in East Devon. And I've redesigned the chair and the production system and got them up and running and they're doing a great job. And with Roger Oates, we're looking at more material development. Can we use Roger Oates waste wool, so factory floor offcuts or workshop offcuts, to make solid wool? And can we bring some of the products we used to make back to market? So I'm helping them, helping them look into that. So why did you decide to sell to Roger Oates? Picking up the story, we'd got to Design Junction in London, and you go to a design show, and there's a but with solid wool that you know it was unique, and there's always people that haven't seen it before, so it was quite exciting, and you kind of like riding that little wave for the week we'd booked in and we'd got ourselves organized to be there but we were starting to think do we want to progress yeah because we'd sort of started the business out of our own pockets and the production process was a bit a bit of a handful i was mending the mold every month you know and it certainly wasn't quick making a chair was not quick it needed something to make it work it needed investment and i think we were viewing that design show as is it worth is it worth taking that leap and trying to find an injection of cash? Right. Interesting. And trying to jump on that track. And I think we used that design show to test that for us. Hannah, you might want to pick up because you always remind me that we packed up, loaded the car, we were leaving. I think as soon as we got to the M4, we were like, no, done. Like driving across London, we were stoked and we were like, yeah, this is really exciting. And then I think it was leaving Hammersmith. There's always that point yeah. driving home that you exit London through Hammersmith and we were like, let's get investment, let's go for it, let's do this. And then we left Hammersmith and we were like, nah, let's not. <laughs> 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 yeah, and I think then we just were like, what do we do though? Do we sell it? What are we selling? It's so much of us and is there enough in the business to sell it? And I think we almost came to a decision that we were happy to just close the business. Yeah, I think we had to accept that, didn't we? We had to go through that acceptance of it might not continue. Yeah, because I think after what happened to Justin and obviously him saying that he came back in and threw himself into work, which was great, you know, meant that he didn't have to go and look for work elsewhere. There was a comfort in doing work that 
prior to being ill had been a motivation and and had been our project. But I think kind of wrapped up in that going to Design Junction was, have we not learned anything from this? You were ill and what is the learning from that? You know, we'd made various changes in our lives from, you know, just lifestyle changes. They weren't huge changes because we led healthy lives anyway, but just the whole part of our life around stress, were we not what do they call it? It's like lightning bolts. You know, if you don't listen, they just come back stronger and stronger. And yes, we loved what we'd created, but we didn't enjoy running a business. Yeah, I think that's key. We were passionate about solid wall, but actually, you know, running a business, being responsible for a building and staff, actually, did we really want that? Yeah. So through chats, we were just like, are we happy if we just close the doors and say, we've created this thing. We're really proud of it. We've had some real highlight, is this just a stepping stone to the next thing? So yeah, we were like, we'll close the doors and made the decision, I think probably September, October of that year. And then we put it out there on Instagram, I think in the January, maybe we were like, you know, this has happened. We've decided to close the doors to the factory as of February, 2020, not really knowing what was going to happen in March, 2020. Yeah, (laughs) We were like, we're happy with that decision. And then literally our inboxes were flooded with interest. And I think there was lots of interest from similar setups, whether it was a couple or a father and son, you know, they would love to take the business on. And we were just like, no, we don't want to hand this to someone like us because they'll have the same issues. It's that whole thing of the perception from the outside. We didn't want someone to take it on and not do it justice. So when Roger Oates got in contact, it was such a perfect fit. And we knew that they would do it justice. They value good design, good materials, provenance, designing things correctly and right. Craftsmanship, you know, beautifully made things. It was nice to hear people wanting to do it, but if someone did it and did a shoddy job, I think as an idea, as a thing, we really felt like it needed, it deserved more life, I think, but with the right custodians, shall we say. And were you staying on as consultant? Was that part of the deal always, Justin? I had accepted I wouldn't, I think. Um, Yeah. I'd had to decide I wasn't going to do it. Otherwise, it was too convoluted. And we wanted a life change and they needed a lifestyle Mm, change. mm. And I was not wanting to be part of it. We'd actually got summer jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is good. This is good. (laughs) We were due to move to the Silly Isles for six months from April 2020 and work on St. Agnes in the Silly Isles, um, looking after the campsite there, which is just a beautiful campsite. And we've stayed there many a time. And yeah, that was our job. We were renting out our house. But this came at the same time, actually, as Roger was taking it on. And they were happy that we would go away for six months. And then Justin would come back and do the handover for the business. Obviously, that never happened because of COVID. So it just meant that Justin started work a little bit earlier on kind of the handover. Right. So. While Justin's doing that, Hannah, I'm intrigued. You've launched a new newspaper, The South Westerner, right? And as someone who spent quite a lot of his working life in print media, I know how brave that is. The really interesting element, as far as I could work out, is there's no online content at all. It's just ink and paper. Yeah, yeah. So when we were running Solidwall in the old mill building in Buckfastley, it was 2019, I hosted a pop-up market called Wintertide, where I just curated about 40 makers from throughout the Southwest 
all hosted on one of the floors before they had any people in the mill building. And it was a real success. And and I guess COVID happened. And I didn't really want to run an event like that again, just with the unpredictable rules around events. I guess alongside this, I was lucky that I could be pretty much a full-time mum to Mo. So, you know, I was quite happy with that role and wanting to make the most of time with her before she turned four and needed and was going to start school, which she starts in September. So yeah, I was I was kind of thinking, you know, what do I like doing? What am I going to do now? Because Justin was contracted to Roger Oates. So I needed to kind of fulfill that creative side of me. So I like researching things. I like finding out about people and sharing it. And yeah, I was out in the woods and I just kind of, I was running and then in my head suddenly came the Southwester. And I was like, ah, yeah. I was like, that's a good name for a newspaper. And I was like, oh, I could curate a newspaper. and. Yeah, I guess it's just one of those ideas that takes hold and you're like, it makes logical sense, therefore it has to happen. Well, they're quite intoxicating things, newspapers and magazines, let me tell you. And how often does it come out? Well, I I launched the first issue in March. Ah, It was a project whilst Mo was at nursery. So she's been at nursery two mornings a week. So I I worked on it when she was at nursery and brought the first issue out in March. I did a print run of a thousand and I've sold them. So yeah, I'm about to launch the next issue in September and then I hope for it to be a a quarterly. So I didn't want it to be online because it's all too easy to read things online. And I guess the idea of it being a newspaper for your imagination, I think just having something in your hands, as we all know, print when you don't read the article first online and it kind of spoils. It's like watching a trailer of a film. You you watch it all and then it kind of spoils the film. So if you read half of a magazine online and then you buy the real thing, it kind of spoils that experience. Well, I applaud anybody who's launching print products nowadays. So you have my complete respect, honestly. So future plans. You've got the paper, Hannah, obviously. Can we expect new materials or will you go off and run a campsite again? Or you know, what, what can we expect from you? As I said, I had to accept that Solival wouldn't continue and that chair would not continue. But what I didn't really realise until Roger Oates said, would you redesign the chair or get the chair back into production? What I didn't really realize was that I did have unfinished business and I always knew that the chair could be better than it was. The material could be better than it was. As I've said, it's, it's, tw- it's got 50% wool now, which is twice what it had before. So I feel very lucky that I got the chance to do that work and I had really enjoyed redeveloping the material and redesigning the chair and working with the new team. So there are a few projects ongoing, as I said, with new material development and, and bringing the side table back into production. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that at the moment. But yeah, what else I do? Because that's not going to be forever, maybe. So that's what else I do. I'm not really sure at the moment. Okay. Well, we will watch this space. Hannah, Justin, thank you so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed that. It's lovely to see you again. Thank you. Yeah, lovely to see you as well, Grant. Thank you very much. To find out more about Solid Wool, go to solidwool.com. It would also be wonderful to see you at the new Material Matters Fair that's running from the 22nd to the 25th of September at London's Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf. It's free to come, you just need to register, which you can do by going on to materialmatters.design, that's materialmatters.design, and clicking on the visit page. I'll also put an Eventbrite link in the notes with this episode. Finally, and this is really important too, If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. 
And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message to the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening. 